Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. To my bed crimers, hi, how are you? I hope you're doing well. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out the channel. Let me just ask that after listening to and or watching the video, if you found you enjoyed it, please do me a favor, smash that like button. And if you want to support the work I do, please consider a Patreon membership. You'll find a link in the description. Now, let's dig in. Victims of serial killers are often unable to tell others what exactly happened to them for the obvious reason. They usually end up lifeless and their memories die with them. Only victims who miraculously escape their attackers live to tell. Today, I want to share what a woman who survived an attack by the notorious Ted Bundy experienced with him from their initial meeting to what she endured, to how she escaped. I think her story is interesting and important. First, it may shed light on what victims of alleged serialists like Rex Uerman may have experienced. He's currently presumed innocent, but the evidence against Huerman is very compelling. Second, how this lady escaped may inform others of what to do if they, God forbid, find themselves in the grips of a monster. Her name is Rhonda Stapley, and she unknowingly stepped into the path of the very dangerous Bundy in 1974 at the age of 21. While a pharmacy student at the University of Utah, 1974 was a prolific year for the murderous Ted Bundy. In all, he attacked 12 young women that year, 13 if we count Rhonda Stapley. Of those, Bundy killed 10. The only women to survive Ted Bundy in 1974 were Rhonda Stapley, Karen Sparks, who the serialist essayed and beat with a metal rod, leaving her with lifelong medical problems, and Carol Dorange. Stapley had the experience of being up close and personal with Ted Bundy in his tan Volkswagen Beetle for many minutes, and she can attest to the fact that the handsome serialist did not give off killer vibes, at least to her. When Bundy looked at Rhonda, she didn't see the cold, dark eyes of an obviously violent man. Instead, she found herself somewhat smitten with Ted. For a few minutes, she even entertained the thought of dating the good-looking law student. Stapley was in the fourth year of a six-year program, and she was living in the medical towers with roommates at the time. She described a culture in the dorms where nobody locked their doors at night, everyone was very friendly, and there were always parties to attend. Basically, life was good. Ironically, Stapley had just bought a car, but she was too afraid to drive it in the very busy Utah traffic. She said that everyone knew that hitchhiking was dangerous, but it hadn't been dangerous for very long, so she wasn't afraid to try it. By early October of 1974, when Rhonda was studying in Utah, Ted Bundy had already attacked many women. The manner in which he did in his victims was among the most violent and terrifying. He would actually break a victim's bones before that person was deceased. He was also known to keep parts of bodies 
after the fact. He's been described as a person who ravaged his victims, intending to cause them great pain before they died. Bottom line, Bundy was off the charts evil, and he should not ever be admired or celebrated in any way, shape, or form. Sometimes it feels like people admire his smarts instead of looking at him for what he was, a cold-blooded killer. Now, on this particular day in October, Rhonda Stapley took a bus from the campus to the downtown area for a dental appointment. Again, she didn't want to drive her new car. After the appointment, she decided to walk through Liberty Park. It was autumn, and the leaves in the trees and on the ground were beckoning with their warm hues of crimson, yellow, and pumpkin. Rhonda wanted to break in a new pair of hiking boots. The laces on the boots were extremely long, so she wrapped them around her ankles several times and knotted them tightly that morning. Her boots were solidly on her feet, and this would prove important later that day. She crunched through the leaves on the ground and did some people watching. But then the pain from her dental surgery started to break through. It was time to get home to take some aspirin. So she walked over to the bus stop and waited. But the bus didn't turn up. At least not before a tanned Volkswagen Beetle drove by. It was going slowly. It then stopped and the driver put it in reverse and came back to exactly where Rhonda was standing. The driver rolled down the passenger side window to ask her where she was going. To Rhonda, he looked like any other college student. She said Bundy was nicely dressed and seemed polite. He was also handsome. He asked her if she wanted a ride to the university, which is where he said he was going. Rhonda replied, sure, and she hopped in. Bundy chatted Rhonda up and she found him very intelligent and, of course, very charming. He was focusing all his attention on her in those first minutes inside the car, and she was flattered. Maybe this guy would turn into her boyfriend. And he's studying the law. Who doesn't want to date a lawyer? Me. But that's another story for another time. So Rhonda's in this infamous beetle with Bundy, and she has no idea what he's really thinking and what's about to go down. At first, Bundy drives in the direction of the university, so everything's cool. Rhonda's not sensing any impending danger or anything off or weird. In fact, she's completely buying into this guy just being another student who wants to help another student. But after a couple of blocks, Bundy turned in a way that wasn't the normal route to the university. He tells Rhonda very politely that he needs to run a short errand near the zoo. Rhonda tells him she doesn't mind. She figures she'd still be getting home sooner than if she'd still been standing there waiting for the bus. It wasn't long, however, before they got to the zoo. The problem was that Bundy just kept driving past it. This is when things started to seem odd. Rhonda asks Bundy where they're going. By now, he's driving up canyons, and he's not talking, and he's no longer smiling. At this point, he had his hands gripped for on the steering wheel. Now Rhonda's getting stressed. Bundy was slowing down and looking at places to pull over. Rhonda thought, well, maybe this guy wants to find an area 
where they can make out. But as a very religious young woman, she was thinking to herself, there's no way I'm going to make out with this guy. And she was asking herself secretly, how do I get out of this? Then he drove into a secluded picnic area. He pulled the car into the trees and turned it off. Silence. He quickly turns to her and puts his hands around her throat and begins squeezing. Now Rhonda knew she'd made a big mistake. She's telling herself that she should have known better. Bundy then leans in really close to her face. She thinks, well, maybe now he's going to kiss me. Instead, Bundy whispers, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill you. Rhonda said her first thought was, no, this can't be happening. Why would he want to harm me? I haven't done anything to him. I don't believe this. She thought maybe he was pulling a sick joke. She was in disbelief, like this dude has the wrong person. But Bundy wasn't trying to be funny. His face was full tilt rage. A battle ensues in the car. He's bashing Rhonda now, and she's trying to deflect the blows. She falls unconscious momentarily. Bundy drags her out of the car to a picnic table where the assault continues. He slaps her face to wake her up. The slapping has torn her dental stitches loose, and blood is now dripping from her mouth. He essays her at some point. She's not even aware of it. Rhonda said he seemed to like watching her come in and out of consciousness. He'd knock her out, only to then wake her up. At one point, he had her on the ground, and he was sitting on her chest with all of his weight on her chest and stomach. She was having trouble breathing. She screamed, get off, I can't breathe. He said, stop struggling and I'll let you breathe. She continued to struggle. He told her, relax. So she finally stopped moving. He then rolled up to his knees, relief for a split second. But then he puts his hand over her nose and mouth. Once again, she can't breathe. Bundy didn't want death for her at this point. He wanted to watch her slowly die. That's when he really came alive. That's when he was in his dark fantasy. He enjoyed seeing his victim's terror. This makes me wonder if alleged serialist Rex Heuerman played similar games with his victims. Allegedly. Again, he's presumed innocent at this time. The last time Rhonda Stapley regained consciousness, Bundy was no longer standing near her. He was over at his car, digging around in it for something. It was pitch black out in the woods, but the dome light on his car was on just enough so that she could see a little bit of what he was doing. Rhonda, full of the instinct to survive, got up and took off running in the opposite direction. Adrenaline fueled her, but unbeknownst to her, her pants were down around her ankles, so she tripped on her first step. But whether by divine intervention or just blind luck, Rhonda had the miracle of falling into a mountain river that wasn't very deep, but it was very fast and it was moving. It immediately swept her away from from Bundy. There was water swirling all around her. It was freezing cold. She was running into tree limbs and having her skin torn up. At some point, far enough away from Bundy, she was able to get out of the river. She knew where the university was, and she started walking in that direction. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? I'd be panicking that he might turn up in that damn tan Volkswagen. It's like a scary movie, only it's real. 
Rhonda didn't want to tell anyone what she'd just been through. If she told her mom, her mother would say, you've got to come home right now. If she told other students, they might say to her how stupid she was to get in a stranger's car. So she decided not to tell anyone, and she lived with this nightmare secret for 40 long years. When other women started disappearing in the area and being found dead, Rhonda blamed herself. She felt maybe they would not have died if she'd gone to the police, which may have been true. Before he went to the death chamber, Bundy confessed to 30 murders in seven states between 1974 and 1978, but it's believed the actual number of his victims may be higher. Rhonda later saw her perpetrator's face on the news when it was announced that that same fall of 1974, this man, Ted Bundy, had kidnapped another young woman, Carol Durant. Durant, like Stapley, miraculously survived her attack, but unlike Stapley, she reported the crime to the police. Here's how Bundy came to kidnap her. He approached her at a mall in Murray, Utah, while she was shopping on November 8th of 1974. He told her that he was a cop investigating a break-in of her vehicle. Although not wearing a uniform, he flashed a police badge. Durange, wanting to be helpful to this authority figure, dutifully followed the man. She made it clear years later that she was not persuaded by Bundy's appearance or personality. It was only him being an authority figure. So unlike Stapley, Durange wasn't taken in by his superficial charm. Durange told People Magazine this of her first impressions of Ted Bundy when he approached her in that mall. She said, quote, I thought he was kind of creepy. I thought he was a lot older than he was, end quote. She smelled alcohol, and he was known to consume this before his crimes. Once inside his car, the real Bundy struck, and Durange was in for the fight of her life. Bundy tried to handcuff her on both hands, but was unsuccessful, which helped pave the way for her escape. Durange also declined his suggestion to put her seatbelt on, as they drove about a half a mile away from the mall. Bundy then brandished a crowbar and a gun in front of her, but she still fought. At some point, she was able to open the door on her side and get out of the car. Now, this may be why later victims would find themselves in his car where there was no door latch on the passenger side. Serialists, we know, refine their skills as they journey through their dark careers. That was likely one of Bundy's refinements. Outside Bundy's car, Durange had to fight once again. On the side of the road, he tried to smash her into submission with his crowbar. But again, miraculously, that's when Wilbur and Mary Walsh approached in a car from the other direction. Durange saw her escape in that vehicle. She broke free from Bundy, ran toward the car and leapt into it. 
Bundy's handcuffs were still dangling from one of her wrists, so it was pretty obvious that this young woman was being assaulted and that the guy on the side of the road was dangerous. Doranche went straight to the police to report the attack. Now on that same night, Bundy, still thirsty for blood, went to a nearby high school. That's where he made 17-year-old Deborah Kent his next victim. Kent had been attending a play at Viewmont High School in Bountiful, Utah. She left the play at 10.30 p.m. to head out to the parking lot. She needed to drive and pick up her brother from the nearby rustic roller rink. Tragically, she never made it. According to witnesses, there was a loud screaming coming from the school's parking lot around the same time Kent left. One person saw a light-colored Volkswagen Beetle speeding away. After her parents realized that she'd never made it out of the school parking lot, at least not in her own car, they went to where her car was parked. Lo and behold, they found a handcuff key on the ground next to the vehicle. The key, along with the description of Bundy's tan Volkswagen, connected Kent's disappearance to Bundy. But Kent's parents would not know for sure and would not be told where their daughter's body was until 1989. Bundy finally confessed to Kent's death just before his execution in 1989. At that time, he led authorities to where he claimed to have put her body. It was in the Fairview Canyon area of Fairview, Utah. But the only human bone found there was a kneecap, which was assumed to be Kent's. At the time, investigators were unable to get DNA from the remains. It wasn't until 2015 that the bone was finally identified as belonging to Deborah Kent. Finally, some closure for her family. Back to Carol Deranche in 1974. Unlike Rhonda Stapley, Deranche reported her horror experience with the violent stranger. Law enforcement then released a suspect profile, and in fact, Bundy's then-girlfriend, Elizabeth Klopfer, reported her suspicions about Bundy to the police multiple times in 1974. Despite all that, Bundy was not arrested until August 16th of 1975. He was first charged for an inadvertent traffic offense. Only then did he come onto the police's radar for these other serious crimes. Here's how the trooper realized he was dealing with more than a driver breaking road rules. When Utah Highway Patrol Trooper Bob Hayward attempted to stop Bundy for a traffic violation in Granger, Utah, Bundy immediately aroused suspicion when he tried to get away. He turned his car lights off, and he sped through stop signs. When good old Ted was finally stopped, his Volkswagen was searched, and that's when Trooper Hayward found handcuffs, an ice pick, a crowbar, pantyhose with eye holes cut out, and other sketchy items. Bundy was initially arrested for burglary. The items located resembled the same restraints that Bundy had used to kidnap Carol Deranche. Remember, she was still wearing handcuffs on one wrist when she broke free from Bundy, and Deranche had told the police about the crowbar that her assailant had used. Deranche was asked to come in for a lineup. Among the men standing against the wall was Ted Bundy. Carol recognized him the minute she saw him. Bundy would then stand trial and be convicted of Deranche's attempted kidnapping. 
it would seem the police had this dangerous man locked down for good. In February of 1976, Bundy stood trial for Durange's nabbing. After a four-day bench trial, the judge found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison. After he was found guilty in Utah of Durange's crime, Bundy was sent to Aspen, Colorado to be tried for taking the life of Karen Campbell, a 23-year-old nurse from Dearborn, Michigan. Carol Durange agreed to testify at this trial. By this time, Bundy was acting as his own attorney, which allowed him to cross-examine Durange. Durange wanted to help prosecutors because she wanted to make sure Bundy was found guilty of murder. Can you imagine how terrifying that must have been for her? I can't help but think about Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk, the survivors of the quadruple crime in Moscow, Idaho. It's scary enough to be in the same room as the person suspected of taking your friend's lives, I would imagine. But what if that person was allowed to approach you and question you on the stand as an attorney would? I'd either be shaking in my boots or I'd want to use my nails on his face. Durange described the Bundy she saw during those moments in court as being, quote, so arrogant. Durange said this about testifying in court. I was totally happy to do it. I thought the sentence he got for kidnapping, the 1 to 15 years, I thought it wasn't enough. I thought, this monster tried to murder me, and he might be out in two years. I thought, I will go and help them get a murder conviction and have him put away. So I never felt that I wouldn't testify. I thought it was really important that I do. And End quote. But the saga of Ted Bundy would continue when he jumped out the second story of the courthouse and took off running for Aspen Mountain. I'm going to stop there with the Bundy story because I really wanted to focus on Rhonda Stapley's experience with him to show that sometimes these monsters don't give off a scary vibe, that you should never get in a stranger's car if you can help it, that no matter how good-looking and charming a person is, that doesn't make them a kind, safe human being, that you should wear a good pair of running shoes if you're ever out and about by yourself just in case you need to run, and that you should learn how to fight off an attacker just in case one ever comes your way. God forbid. Did Rex Hurman alleged victims experienced something similar to what Stapley and Durange went through? We can only guess for now, but perhaps at trial, such info will come out. The police in Suffolk County say they have spoken to a few incarcerated escorts who say they had frightening experiences with Hewerman, so we shall see. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Let Bundy make a statement. I'm not asking for mercy. For I find it somewhat absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and receive the pain for that act. But I will not share the burden for the guilt. In imposing sentence, Judge Cowart cited the savagery of the crimes and what he called the indifference of the defendant. This court, independent of, but in agreement with... The advisory sentence rendered by the jury does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant Theodore Robert Bundy.
Then, in an unexpected move, perhaps an afterthought, Cowart stunned the courtroom with some parting words for Bundy. Take care of yourself, young man. Thank you. I, I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It's a tragedy for this court to see it's such a total waste, I think, of humanity that I've experienced in this court. You're a bright young man. You made a good lawyer. I'd love to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. Bundy says he'll appeal. Meanwhile, he has been ordered to the state prison to await setting of the date of his execution in the electric chair. Ed Rabel, CBS News, Miami. Would you please state your full name for the record? Do you know like Robert Bundy? Directing your attention to the early morning of August 15, 1975, uh, after you'd been stopped by Trooper Hayward, approximately what time of the morning? We established that it was really the 16th or did That date, Judge, this there's a discrepancy in, in the report. Well, it's either the 15th or the 16th. Is there any question about that? It's not. All right. right. Longest. We're not hung with one on one day and one on another. That's the only thing the court was worried about. We're talking about one single incident, either August the 15th or August the 16th. Is that correct, gentlemen? That's correct. All right. Proceed on. About what time? It was early in the morning, uh, approximately 2 o'clock. After you had been stopped, did Officer Hayward say anything to you? <clears throat> well, after. The stop had occurred, I exited my car, and the officer, Hayward, uh, had left his car and approached me, and the first thing he said to me uh, was, why didn't you get out of your car and run? I would have, I could have taken your head off, or words to those effect, or to, words to that effect. Did he ask you for your driver's license and registration? He did. I think he asked me. A number of questions which intervened the request for a driver's license and I think he asked me after his first comment what I was doing in his neighborhood to which I did not initially make a response and then he asked me for my driver's license which I got from the inside of my car. Did you produce a driver's license? Yes. Did you say registration? Yes. Did Officer Hayward advise you of your rights that time? No. 